You're listening to audio from Seven Mile Road Church in Waltham, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. If you'd like to check out more of our resources or learn more about our church, please visit sevenmilewaltham.com. One of my favorite scenes in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia takes place in The Magician's Nephew. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have read The Magician's Nephew before? Okay, several of you. Excellent. Um, here's my hot take for the day. If you haven't read them, um, read them in publication order, not in chronological order. And if you want to talk more about that afterwards, I'd be happy to do that. But um, in this scene, um, Aslan is singing the world into um, existence. Several characters, uh, Diggory and Polly, Uncle Andrew um, and the witch. There's also a cab driver and a horse. They all find themselves uh, kind of um, uh, going through this portal and they're in this blank space. They don't know where they are and off in the distance they start hearing this song. And as the scene starts to unfold, they recognize that not only is there this song, but there's this singer, and it's this great lion. And, and it seems as if um, ev- whatever he's singing, there, there's, 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 there's something that takes place because of it. The, the stars are created, and the, the sun is created, and, and the land. And so you, you get this picture almost of a, of a Genesis 1 kind of moment as Aslan is singing Narnia into existence. By the power of his word... The song of his voice, the lion, is creating Narnia. And the two children, Diggory and Polly, are witnessing just the sheer power, the majesty and glory of the lion. And because he's a lion, there's, there's a rumble to his song and they can feel it. And it is both mesmerizing and captivating. And as they hear this song, they're, they're, getting, they're, they're witnessing uh, the, the character of the lion, and they experience his goodness, truth, and beauty. At the same time, there's Uncle Andrew. He's there, he's at the same place, but he has a completely different take. He's not captivated by the lion. In fact, his first impulse when he sees the lion is to shoot him. When he hears the song and when he sees the lion, all he sees is a snarling, vicious beast at first just like the children he hears the song but he rejects it he disdains it and he starts to convince himself no this is not a song this is just a snarling lion what he does is exchanges the truth for a lie and he convinces himself that all he hears is a snarl lewis writes about this moment he says the longer and the more beautiful the lion sang the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roar. Now, the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. Uncle Andrew did. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song. Soon, he couldn't have heard anything else, even if he wanted to. And at last, when the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he, he, he didn't hear any words. He only heard a snarl. Can you see that moment? See, the children see a majestic lion with a beautiful song. 
All Uncle Andrew sees is a beast with a snarl. And the difference is not the lion. It's not the song. The difference is the heart. The difference is in the eye of the beholder. This morning as we continue our series, Deliverance and Devotion, we come to Exodus chapter 5 and 6. And in this scene, Pharaoh is going to hear the word of the Lord through Moses. And yet to him, the word of the Lord is not a song but a snarl. In his defiance of God's word, he seeks to discredit the Lord and break the spirit of his people with impossible demands. And at the same time, to the people of God, his word is a song, but they only listen to the parts of it that they want to hear. And this sort of selective hearing leads to false expectations that results in despair. And yet the Lord is exceedingly gracious. He will continue to sing his song for those who by faith have hearts to hear. So as we work through the text this morning, we're going to see three movements in the narrative. First, in Exodus 5, verses 1 to 9, we're going to see this principle emerge that pride defies and discredits God's word. Pride will always seek to defy and discredit God's word. Second, as we look in Exodus chapter 5, verses 10 to 22, we'll see false expectations can deafen God's word. False expectations can deafen God's word. And third and finally, in Exodus 6, 1 through 8, we'll see that deliverance is promised by God's word. That the song of his word goes out and he promises deliverance. And through it all, we're going to be challenged ourselves, not just to hear a good story, but to consider how do we hear God's word. As, as God's word goes out through, through preaching or through reading, is God's word to us a song or a snarl? Is God's word a song or a snarl? Do we often come to God's word with selective hearing where we, we really like certain parts of it and we want to focus on those, but the parts we don't like, we just deafen our ears to them? Or do we come with hearts of faith ready to hear and receive God's word? So let's begin in verse 1, and we'll see our first point, pride defies and discredits God's word. Here again, the word of the Lord. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says Yahweh, that is God's word going out. Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, well, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. Now, if you remember from last week or if you weren't here just from your memory of um, Exodus, we, uh, as, the, as chapter 4 came to a close, you find Moses and Aaron reuniting. They're back together again, brothers after all this time. And Moses tells Aaron all about meeting Yahweh um, in the burning bush. And he unfolds God's plan for deliverance. And Aaron is, is on board with everything. Um, it's an exciting moment. And they go back into uh, Egypt and they go to the elders of Israel. They gather them all together and they tell them, hey, um, uh, uh, Moses says, I have met Yahweh. I have met with the Lord and he has heard our prayers. He has heard our cries for deliverance. 
And remember in chapter 4, God had uh, showed uh, Moses all these signs of power with the staff becoming um, a serpent and, and being able to uh, pour water on the ground and becoming drops of blood. He was able to put his hand inside of his cloak and it would be leprous and then non-leprous. He was, he was showing them all these things. Look what the Lord has, has enabled me to do so I can go into Pharaoh with these signs of power. And the people are excited. They're like, it's finally happening. The moment we've all been waiting for, and the word, uh, God's word tells us that the people believed. They believed the word. They received God's word as a song. And as we step into chapter 5, everything is going just as they hoped. It, in other words, they're riding into the court of Pharaoh on a spiritual high. They've heard from the Lord. The people are on board. There's all this momentum and energy. They walk up to Pharaoh but in Pharaoh, they meet a brick wall. Thus says the Lord, and he scoffs at them. In verse 1, Moses and Aaron are standing before the Lord, this supreme ruler over this vast empire with unrivaled power. And in obedience to the call, Moses and Aaron go and communicate the word of the Lord. Thus says Yahweh. By the way, anytime you see in your Bible capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, where it's got the little small caps, L-O-R-D, that is the Hebrew word Yahweh. It's the Hebrew word Yahweh. Now, out of re respect for Jewish tradition, who, uh, they didn't like to say the name Yahweh, uh, that it was considered to be so holy and sacred that they didn't want to say it. So in our English translations, that's why they put L-O-R-D, but it is the word Yahweh. And so in today's text, as I read, anytime there's that L-O-R-D, I'm just going to say Yahweh. So we get used to hearing the divine name. Just as a side note, I don't think God would have revealed that name, given us that name, if he didn't want us to say it. So, but in chapter 3, God reveals to Moses in the burning bush uh, his name. And, and he tells him it's, it's Yahweh. And if you remember that scene, it begins with, uh, he said, Moses says, well, who, who do I say that has sent you? And the Lord says, tell them, I, you know, I am who I am. It's this, it's this longer phrase. And Yahweh is kind of a shortened uh, form of that I am who I am. In other words, God is saying, um, I am the God who was, is, and evermore will be. No one defines me. I am the self-defining God. I am who I am. You can always count on me to be true to who I am. Unlike you and me where sometimes we, we have this perception of our character, but we sometimes act in, in uh, discord with that. God never does that. He always acts in accordance with his character. That's why you can trust him. See, nothing influences him or persuades him. He can't be bought. He can't be bartered with. He can't be negotiated with you cannot manipulate or control him he is the god who is he will always act in accordance with his nature he's completely sufficient he is who he is i am who i am there is no one like him and when we hear that name i am and we and we put all that together that that's fine and good but i want you to notice something here that it's a name with a blank canvas. It's a name with a mystery. If you left uh, chapter 3 going, but I still don't know what it means when he says, I am who I am. I still don't know what Yahweh means. You are, you are reading it correctly. In other words, God is revealing a name with this blank space. 
And what's going to happen over the rest of the book of Exodus as he acts in accordance with his nature, as he does things, as he shows his awesome power, as he shows his compassion for his people, it's going to start painting that picture. It's going to be filling out the blank pages so that you learn about who God is. That's what the rest of the book of Exodus is all about. It's like, I am who I am, and now I'm going to tell you who I am. And you could read the rest of the Bible, and all of that is just filling in that blank space so that when you hear the name Yahweh, all that you know about God and who he is fills that space. Every page of the Bible from here on out will continue to teach us and to fill out what the name Yahweh means. So now Pharaoh is introduced to Yahweh, the God of Israel, and what's more is this God comes with a demand. He doesn't just say, hey how, hey, how you doing? I'm Yahweh. He says, I'm Yahweh. Let my people go. And he is asking for a three-day religious pilgrimage so that they can take a break from work, which I just want you to get in your mind for a moment. Um, we're used to having, you know, breaks. Like there's days when you're not working or days when you're not in school. There's these regular rhythms of break. When you're a slave, there's no breaks. There's no off day. And so what the Lord is asking is for the machine of Pharaoh's slavery to stop, halt production for three days so that they can go out into the wilderness, away from the burdens, away from um, the the oppression, away from the, the watching eye, and hold a religious feast and sacrifice to the Lord. And in this short demand, God is making both a claim that the people of Israel are really his people, not Pharaoh's. And that they should serve and worship him, not Pharaoh. So how do you think Pharaoh uh, responds to that request? Well, it's likely that he's never heard the name Yahweh before. So there's, in one sense, when he says, who is Yahweh, he's, he's asking a legitimate question. But one thing he does know, Pharaoh bows to no one. In Egypt, he is the Lord not Yahweh. He negotiates with no one. He takes orders from no one. He is uh, the incarnation of the gods of Egypt in like physical form. Like no one, is, no one has ever told him what to do. And now these two guys are walking in, members of his slave nation, and they're starting to make demands of him. He certainly doesn't take orders from slaves or this puny, lesser God of the Israelites. So to him, the request is offensive. It's also laughable. So when you see that, who is Yahweh, I don't want you to think like pure inquisition, like who's Yahweh? I've never heard of that guy before. It's more like who is Yahweh? Who are you? Can you hear the sarcasm? Can you hear the demeaning tone? This is not a genuine question of inquiry. This is a statement of contempt and derision. He scoffs at the notion that he should take orders from some lesser unknown God. And you start to see that instead of a song, the word of the Lord is a snarl to him. He is resolved in his defiance against Yahweh. Verse 4, but the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens? The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, 
You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our gods. Pharaoh is offended that Moses and Aaron would even suggest that his labor force take a day off, let alone three days off. And so in his pride, not only does he defy the word of the Lord, he emphatically says no. He is determined to crush the spirit of the people so that they would never ever think to bother him with a request just like this. And so he gathers his taskmasters together and the foreman and he says, listen, we are going to increase their burdens. In the past, we used to provide straw for them, but now they're going to have to go do that themselves. And yet, they're still going to have to have the same amount of production as before. So in ancient brick making, straw was used to reinforce uh, the bricks because clay itself is very brittle. But if you put straw in there, it acts as a fiber and the clay packs in with that and it makes it very strong. It, it's similar to what we do today when we put rebar in concrete. It's acting to reinforce. It gives it something to bite and bind into to take that which is inherently very brittle and make it stronger. So you, you, you can't make bricks without straw. But in the past, Pharaoh provided the straw and they made the bricks. And now people are going to have to go gather and find the straw, and yet the quota, the production level, still has to remain the same. In fact, this is insanity. There's just no like logistical way that this could work, and that's the point, because he knows they'll fail. Then he gets to beat them and subjugate them even more. All of it is a ploy to break their spirits. It is absolute tyranny to require the same quota of production while adding this extra step of gathering straw. Some words that I thought of this week that uh, would describe it. It's maniacal, it's cruel, it's pure evil. The point of this is to remind the Hebrews who the real God in Egypt is. Now look at verse 9. Pharaoh says, let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it. And pay no regard to lying words. Now, what I want you to see here is that not only does Pharaoh defy God's word, but he's seeking to discredit God's word. He wants them to believe that Yahweh is a liar. They've come in and saying, hey, let our people go. We need to go worship the Lord. And he wants them to go, no, no, no. I am God. He is not. He wants them to believe that all this talk of deliverance, all this hope that Moses has given them is a lie. He wants them to believe no deliverance is coming. There's no rest for the weary. There's no hope for you to look forward to. Stay in line. Know your place. Forget about Yahweh. Do your job. And no one gets hurt. And we should expect nothing less from Pharaoh. We've said this before, but it's worth repeating. Pharaoh is being set up like a seed of the serpent. The same Moses who wrote Genesis also wrote Exodus. And so if you remember back in the garden, you have the serpent who is a deceiver and a liar who always seeks to discredit God's word. And wouldn't you know what emblem does Pharaoh have on his crown? It's a cobra. 
He's wearing a symbol of the serpent. And he is just like his father, the ancient serpent from the garden, who said, did God really say? You remember that scene in Genesis 3? You won't surely die. What is he doing? He's saying God is a liar. You cannot trust his word. Who is Yahweh anyway? See, this is nothing more than the serpent using the same old tactics. And friends, this is what the enemy does. He's not creative like God is. See, God's very creative. If you read the Bible, God moves and, 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 and works in so many different creative ways such that um, every scene is not the exact same. You notice that. But the serpent, he's not creative. And so lying is his tactic and it will always be his tactic. He doesn't come up with any new ways. He is the father of lies and deception. And for him, the word of God has never been a song. It's always been a snarl. And he will do everything in his power to defy and discredit his word. Now, if you think about our day and age, we are not going up against a, a mighty supreme pharaoh. So there's no pharaohs, but, but we still face confrontations with those who would seek to defy and discredit God's word. Think of the many places where we hear this old refrain, pay no attention to lying words. You hear this in our culture today. Pay no attention to lying words that say marriage is between one man and one woman. We all know love is love and all that matters is that you find someone to make you happy. Do you see how they're seeking to discredit God's word? Or they'll say things like, pay no attention to the lying words of God that say God created the male and female in a beautiful binary. We all know that gender is a social construct that exists on an ever-expanding spectrum. Pay no attention to the lying words that say every single human being is created in the image of God and is worthy of dignity and respect and care from the womb to the tomb. See, though you can't say it out loud... The lies of our culture tell us that we know that some people are simply not as worthy. And this plays itself out in so many different forms of prejudice and racism. It works itself out into abortion and all sorts of other atrocities. Pay no attention to lying words that says that God's word is trustworthy and true. We all know that it may have some good stories and some generally good morals. But we know that the word of God is incompatible with science and out of touch with modern values. Or pay no attention to lying words that say Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and me. We all know that the only truth that matters is your truth and everyone just needs to look inside and discover what is true for them. See friends, I want you to know that Pharaoh is alive and well today seeking to defy and discredit God's word. And if I can make this personal for a moment, it's not just the cultural pharaohs of our day that seek to define discredit God's word. If we're honest, even Christians do it ourselves, though we do it in much more subtle ways. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes I come to the scripture with this attitude in the back of my mind and the, the darker recesses of our hearts. And when I read something and I go, did God really say that? Surely he didn't mean it like that. Surely... What God said was something different. And then we begin to twist the words of God to make them more palatable and easier for us to digest. Or we just simply neglect them all together. Letting our Bibles collect us, ignoring God's word so that we never have to pay 
attention to them. See, friends, all of us need to ask the question, is God's word to us a song or a snarl? Are there ways that we seek to defy and discredit God's word? And if you find, if you're honest with yourself, any impulse towards that end, it's pride. Pride does not submit. Pride does not want to let a word rule over us. It wants us to rule over the word. Pride always seeks to discredit. It never suffers rivals. Pride will keep you from listening. Pride will defy and discredit God's word. Now let's keep moving in the text to see our next movement. How false expectations can deafen God's word. Verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh. Why do you treat your servants like this? By the way, the foremen are Hebrew slaves being um, raised up in levels of leadership to, uh, to give oversight to the Hebrew slaves. So the foremen, these are the Hebrew people coming to, uh, to Pharaoh and said, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straws given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to Yahweh. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you still must deliver the same number of bricks. So as the text unfolds, the taskmasters begin to unfold Pharaoh's plan. And as you would expect, production slows down. Quotas aren't met. And the result is that the Hebrew people were beaten. And so the foremen seek an audience to bring their case before Pharaoh. There are appealing to reason they're essentially saying there's just no way that you can not give us the straw and expect the same level of production they beg for mercy and what does pharaoh do he gives them none and he calls them lazy and so instead of things getting better things start to get worse this is a ploy not only to discredit yahweh but also to divide the people from their leader moses And it works. Look at verse 19. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble. And they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. Listen to this. Verse 20. They came, these are the Hebrew foremen, to Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, Yahweh, look on you and judge because you've made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So now you start to see the people divided from Moses and Aaron. And so by the word of his power, Pharaoh has succeeded to not only increase the labor pains of his slave force, dashing all of their hopes so that they become despair, and now they start to turn on the ones who gave them that false hope to begin with. Verse 22, then Moses turned to Yahweh and said, O Yahweh, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Now in his despair, Moses turns to the Lord and prays, why have you done evil? Why did you send me? I've done everything you've asked, but you have not brought deliverance. Now this Hebrew word for doing evil here uh, carries the sense of pain and affliction and suffering, not as much as moral evil and so he's not he's not accusing God of sinning as much but he's essentially saying why are you letting them suffer 
Why, why you've promised deliverance, but all you've done is make things worse. And I would uh, suggest to you that this question is driven by a desire to understand why God's deliverance has not come as quickly or uh, without the cost of suffering. I would suspect if you're like me, you have essentially asked this question before you've you've seen headlines of suffering and you've thought god why would you let this happen or you've received that phone call or that text or that conversation with someone close to you where you've received bad news or maybe you've been the one going through a period or time of suffering and you have asked god why have you caused this why have you allowed this to happen god why is it taking so long god why all the suffering And friends, I would suggest to you that this is a natural question. It's a profound question, and it is a very human question. It's not wrong to ask this question. Here, Moses is confused. He's upset. He he thought things were going to go one way, and they're going another way. And he, he doesn't understand, and yet, what does he do? He takes all of his emotion, confusion, and pain to the Lord. Now, my first inclination when I read this was to see it as a distrust of the Lord. Like, Moses, why don't you have faith? Moses, why are you accusing God of of all this? But the more I read it, I came to a different conclusion. That though his language is very direct, though uh, it, it, it seems a little abrupt, it's not a sign of distrust. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's a sign of faith. See, when the people of God go through the same suffering, they don't turn to the Lord. They don't pray to the Lord. They, they turn to Moses and they start accusing them of doing wrong. But instead, Moses turns to the Lord in prayer. Instead of turning away from God, Moses turns to the Lord. And like Paul reminds us in Romans 15, that these things were written to us for our instruction. This is instructive. In fact, his prayer reminds me of the Psalms. Have you, have you read the Psalms? Do you, have you seen just how emotional and direct how people are pouring out their heart to the Lord? It's literally grief spilled out on to a page. There is incredible honesty in the Psalms. There's place as believers to pour our hearts out to the Lord, raw and unfiltered. I don't know where we got this belief that prayer had to be polished, that it had to be pristine, that we had to work out all of our emotions and then come to God with this like picture-perfect poem that we would put on Instagram or something. That is not prayer in the Bible. I'm not saying you can't have polished prayers. What I'm saying is, if you look at the prayer book in the Bible, it's full of both those kinds of like picture-perfect coffee mug prayers and just unfiltered, raw emotion. Moses is being honest with the Lord. And as we'll see in a moment, the Lord will answer him with a beautiful declaration of his promises. You would think, the way he just spoke to Moses, you would think that As chapter 5 comes to a close, chapter 6 is going to be the Lord going, Moses, how dare you? 
I revealed my personal divine name to you. I came to you in the burning bush. I promise you deliver. I'm Yahweh. If I say it, it's going to be, you, you would think he'd get punished for speaking like that to God. But he doesn't. He's not chided for his honesty. He's not scolded for directness. He's not shamed for weakness. I hope that encourages you this morning. That as you face the brokenness and bitterness of life in a fallen world, God does not look at your weakness and go, get over it. Look how pathetic you are. Can't you just get it all together? Why can't you just trust me and let me work it all out? Friends, God does not delight only in your carefully curated prayers. When you say the right things at the right time, he also delights in honest prayers. You can be honest. When you receive hard, difficult news, you don't have to wait to go to the Lord in all of your honesty, no matter how raw or direct. At the same time, I want you to know that God in his kindness has prepared them for this delay of deliverance. He gave them a warning that things would get worse before it got better. Let me remind you when he said that, Exodus 3.19. God is speaking, but I know the king of Egypt will not let you, let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. And then again in Exodus 4.21, the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So twice God has told them it's not going to be easy. You're not just going to waltz in there and be let go. God had told Moses that Pharaoh would not give up his slave labor without a fight and that he would harden his heart. And we're told later in chapter 4 that when Aaron told the people all that the Lord had told Moses that they had believed. In other words, Moses and Aaron relay everything back to the people of God. So what I want you to get in your mind is God tells Moses, this is my plan. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be painless. They go and tell the people that. And yet, when pain and suffering come, the people are like, what's going on? What I want you to see here is that sometimes we can have selective hearing. Anybody in here ever been accused of having selective hearing? All the husbands in the room are raising their hands. Yeah. So like you're sitting there, you're hearing something, you hear, you're like, you're there, like your eyes are locked, you're not even on your phone, you're just, you're listening, and then when you walk away, you guys have walked away with two completely different understandings of what's just transpired. Why? Because sometimes we have selective hearing. We can hear all the words, but we just choose which ones we want to take away with us. And sometimes when we come to God's word, we miss what he's saying because we have selective hearing. So here's what happens. Moses and Aaron come to the people of God. They start saying, listen, God has heard your prayers for deliverance. And they're so excited about that. They latch on to that, but they just somehow miss the whole point. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be hard. Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. The Lord's going to harden his heart. And he's going to do all of this to show an awesome display of his power. But all of that is lost on them. All they heard was deliverance. God is coming. He's going to set us free. When that happens, we can create false expectations. Somehow, some way, this has crept even into the church. We have come to expect that following Jesus means we are exempt from suffering. 
Now, we started this church six years ago, and I went back and looked. What books of the Bible have we preached? So I went back, I looked at our SoundCloud and found them. We've preached the Gospel of Mark, James, Proverbs, Psalms, you know, different selections, the Gospel of John, Philippians, Genesis, 1 Peter, Ecclesiastes, Romans chapter 8 and 12, Esther, and now in the book of Exodus. So we have, we have tried to teach the, from, from the Old and the New Testament, wisdom literature, all of it. And do you know what has been a constant reoccurring theme in every single one of these books? Suffering. Just, I'll just tell you, honestly, as a preacher, I did not expect that. I, I knew that suffering was in the Bible, but I didn't know. It seems like almost every sermon series we're doing, we're talking about the topic of suffering. Why? Because it's on every single page in the Bible. You just cannot go a couple of turns without seeing suffering in the Bible. And yet somehow we have this selective hearing to think, if I follow Jesus, I shouldn't expect any suffering, even though there are very direct passages of Scripture. In 1 Peter, he says, do not think it strange, Christian, when you experience trials and sufferings of various kinds. And yet, what do we do? When we experience trials and sufferings of various kinds, we think it's strange. Why? Because we have selective hearing. We don't want to hear that. We don't want to figure out what it looks like to be faithful in the midst of suffering. Friends, you can't turn a few pages in the Bible without coming face to face with the reality that we live in a sin-soaked, broken world and that God in his wisdom has seen it fit that the people of God, no matter where you find yourselves in redemptive history, will face the brokenness of sin and suffering head on. Jesus, the perfect human, was not exempt from suffering. Why should we think we would be either friends as we see in exodus he the lord is on the move it's not that he's not doing anything he is working salvation for his people and by his grace he doesn't just want to end their slavery he wants to transform them in the process of it into a holy nation a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession who are delighted to proclaim the excellencies of Yahweh, the one who brought his people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And the same is true with us. He does not just want to save us and beam us up to heaven. He wants to transform and change us in the process. And in his infinite wisdom, there are just some things in your life that cannot be formed and shaped without suffering. That doesn't mean it's easy, doesn't mean you would choose it, doesn't mean you would sign up for it, but it does mean none of your suffering is ever wasted in the hands of the Lord. That is why Paul can declare in Romans 5, 2 through 5, through him, that's Christ, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That verse right there says, being a Christian means... There's glory and hope, and we can stand, and it's awesome. But also look at this. Not only that, so that's one side of Christianity. Not only that, but we rejoice in our what? Sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What is Paul saying? There is a kind of patient endurance a kind of proven character, a, 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 an immovable hope that comes only by way of suffering. Only by way of suffering. And God, hear me, is more interested 
in your transformation than your comfort. I know that's a hard medicine to swallow. Because we tend to value comfort and ease as some of our top priorities. We've built our whole life this way. I mean, it's like what Americans are known for. And yet that is not God's highest priority in your life. His number one. People ask all the time, what is God's will for my life? You know the Bible tells you, and this is God's will. You know what the next words are? Your sanctification. Your growing in holiness. Your transformation is God's will for your life. And that includes suffering. It is often the means by which it comes. God is setting the stage for something spectacular that will captivate the attention of this Hebrew nation. And it will set their affections on him. On him. It will change and transform them. Friends, don't let false expectations deafen the song of God's word and your life. Because see, sometimes we miss his song because of pride. But sometimes we miss it because we have selective hearing and we create false expectations. Now, let's see our final movement quickly. That deliverance is promised by God's word. I'm just going to read these verses. I hope maybe sometime this week you will just meditate um, on them. They're, they're, they're promises of deliverance. And they're beautiful. Verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1. But Yahweh said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to you, give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am Yahweh. If you remember at the very beginning, Pharaoh sarcastically asked, who is Yahweh? Well, now the Lord answers. Well, I'll tell you who I am. In fact, chapters 6 to 14 will continue to be God's answer to that question as he sends plagues, as he sends the final plague of the life of the firstborn, as he parts the Red Sea and crushes Pharaoh's army, all to show who he is. And so now he begins this section by reminding Moses that he is the God of his forefathers. And remember, Moses has just said, why have you done evil? And now the, the Lord answers and he reminds them, listen, I am the same God of your forefathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He reminds Moses that he is El Shaddai, God Almighty, that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient. He is God Almighty. And then he begins to add more revelation to that divine name. He is starting to fill out that blank canvas. So in verse 4, we learn that God is a promise-making and promise-keeping God. 
he voluntarily enters into relationship with his people. He binds himself to them by the word of his power. In verse 5, we learn that he is compassionate and attentive to our needs. In verse 6, we learn that he's going to deliver us out of slavery and redeem us by his own hand. In verse 7, we learn that he will be our God and we will be our people. And in verse 8, we learn that he will eventually lead us home. So who is Yahweh? He is a faithful, compassionate redeemer of his people. So friends, do you hear it? Do you hear God's song of redemption? In the midst of despair, Moses pours out his raw, unfiltered heart. And God says, Moses, I want you to look at me. You ever have these moments when you're having a conversation with them and you're getting to like your most important point and you say, hey, look at me. I want you to look at my face. This is who I am. This is who I promise to be. This is what I will do for my people. It's like the Old Testament equivalent to turn your eyes upon Jesus. You remember that hymn? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. He's saying, Moses, I want you to look at me. I want you to turn your face to me. And as you do, as you lock in with me, the things of the earth, the, the trouble, they'll go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. See, there is a kind of transformation that happens when we see the Lord as he is. That's why God is revealing himself in the scriptures. That when we contemplate his faithfulness in the past and his compassion in the present and his provision in the future, it changes us. When The more we know about who God is, it changes us. You see, our circumstances don't often change but we change and we bring a new us into the situation that is more able to stand more able to be resilient because that change that transformation has made all the difference and God's grace his word goes out and for those who have ears to hear it's a song of redemption that will change you if you think about these last few verses this promise of, de- of deliverance is really a promise that has run throughout, that runs throughout the entire Bible. If you remember, he just promised to redeem them from slavery to sin and death, that they would be his people and that he would be their God. This is the promise of our salvation. Did you notice that chapter 6 opened up with the words, but God, and it reminded me of another place in the Bible that begins with, but God. Ephesians chapter 2 But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It's the same redemption. God is delivering people out of slavery, of sin, and death by by the word of his power, by the grace of his outstretched arms. That's what Exodus 6, 6 said. He said, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment this is foreshadowing to that ultimate day of redemption when god would demonstrate the fullness of his love for us as christ himself outstretched his arms on the cross bearing the judgment we deserve and redeeming us from our sin see at the end of the day friends god's song of deliverance is jesus christ and so as we close i ask you is god's word to you a song or a snarl. When you hear his word, does it, does it open up? 
this chasm in your heart in the same way that when we hear a song or is it to you just a snarling lion? Friends, don't let your pride keep you from hearing his song today. Put your faith in him. Delight in his salvation. By faith, read God's word and trust all of it, not just the parts that sound good to you. Receive all of it. Let the full counsel of God inform and set our expectations so that we can hold fast to his promise of deliverance. Let's pray.